Our scripture lesson this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. The book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Let's hear the word of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. May God bless this reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we consider your word and as we apply it to our lives. May you speak to us. May we hear your voice. And may we respond in obedience and in confidence and in love and in joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we saw that Our God is a great God, an almighty God, and a God who can. Whatever challenges you may face, whatever trials you may be going through, God is a God who is able to help you and to hear your prayers. And while there are A few people who do not believe that such a God even exists. There's a much larger group of people, I believe, who acknowledge that there is a God or there may be a God, but they don't believe that he cares very much about us. To them, he is either just some impersonal force or perhaps after creating this earth, after creating all of the plants and the animals and the wonders of this earth, he lost interest or he had other projects and galaxies far, far away, and and he's moved on. And he's not here for us now. He's kind of a deadbeat God, according to many people. This, I believe, is a profoundly sad philosophy. I mean, it's it's completely unbiblical, but it's also profoundly sad that, that God would go to all the trouble of creating us only to abandon us for other projects. And it's interesting to see how David addresses this question in Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, in verse 3 and 4, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man 
that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man, that you care for him. And again, more than David could ever have known, we know of the vastness of the universe. We know of the the immensity of the universe, of the complexity of the creation. And we might even more than David be inclined to say, in the light of, of what we see through the Hubble telescope, who are we? We're just some limited, finite, fallen people on a little blue planet tucked away in a corner of a very average galaxy. What are we that you would even care about us? But then David continues in Psalm 8. And he says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. Yes, We are humbled by the vastness of the universe. And and we should be awed at the thought of the God who could create such a universe. And yet, as we think about it some more, we realize that God's delight is not in some galaxy far away, in some massive star in some supernova that explodes. He says, you've made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned us with glory and honor and you have given us dominion over all the works of your hands and you have put all things under our feet. And so he closes the hymn by saying, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, now not awed not only by the vastness of God's creation, but humbled that God would give us dominion over all that he has created. It was not the creation of the galaxies and the terraforming of the earth or even the creation of life that was the epitome of God's work of creation. After each one of the first five days of creation, the Bible says that God looked at what he had made and what he had done and he saw that it was good. But after creating man in his own image on the sixth day, God looked over everything that he had done and he said it was very good. It was very good. And after creating man, God's work of creation was finished. It it wasn't hump day of the week, of God's week, when he created man. It was the end of the week, and when he had created man in his own image, he said, this is very good. And he rested from his work of creation. There was nothing more to create. He had done it. 
we are not just an afterthought, but we are the epitome of God's creation. And I believe this has a lot to say to us about how God feels about us. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? As the old hymn says, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. And in Matthew 6.26, he goes on to say, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious and say, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. And so when Paul is praying for the Ephesian church and he says, I bow my knees. Before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What's his main prayer request for the church? What is the main thing on his mind for the church in Ephesus? and for the believers who would follow. I bow my knees so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses not that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He wanted them to know the love of God. He wanted them to know that God is a God who cares and that he loves us with a love that surpasses knowledge, that can't even be described. It's beyond words. It's beyond description. To know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. He is a God who cares. But to answer the question even more fully, we can look through the Bible and see how God uses uh, various human relationships that we're all familiar with to describe and to compare the kind of love that he has for us. A father, a mother, a husband, and a savior. Now I have to say that I'm sure that there are some here this morning, too many 
I'm afraid, who have not had a good relationship with your human father or with your mother. Or maybe you were in a marriage where you were unloved or where you were mistreated or deserted. And these things happen and we grieve over them. But the Bible here is speaking of normal relationships, of healthy relationships, of, of, of the family the way it should be, the way it usually is. And so, if you didn't have a good relationship with your father, don't say that God is like my father, but God is like, like a father ought to be, like the father that so many of us were privileged to have. And so we see in the Bible, first of all, that the God who cares loves us like, first of all, a compassionate father. He loves us like a compassionate father. In Hosea 11.1, 1, we read, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. No, he wasn't off on some call in another galaxy. He loved his people. And he said, Out of Egypt, I called my son. And you think, but... Does he love us? We're sinners. Maybe when you were a child, you did something very bad one day. I'm sure you did. I did. I remember specifically one time, it had rained a lot, and my parents, I wanted to go out. It stopped raining. I wanted to go out. I wanted to ride my bike, you know, and they said, now be careful not to get get muddy in all the mud. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't just ride my bike on the pavement. I, I went down to the creek and I was driving on some paths and the bike got all bogged down in the mud and mud got all over the wheels of the bike and all over the bike and all over my shoes and all over the bottom of my jeans. And I was just a muddy mess, you know. And uh, you wonder, what, what are they going to do to me now? They, they told me not to do this, and I went and did it anyway. But apparently I survived that event. I don't, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I, I, they, uh, they let me live. In Psalm 103, we read, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Don't think that because you've sinned, and you may have sinned a very great sin. All of us are sinners. All of us fall short of the glory of God. But don't think that, oh, my, my shoes are too muddy. My jeans are too muddy. I have defied the commands of God. I've done the exact opposite of what he told me to do. He's not going to want to see me. Oh, yes, he is. 
He's a compassionate father. He's a compassionate father. He knows that we're but dust. And he shows compassion to his children. And in Romans 8, 14 through 16, we read, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know the story of the prodigal son. He asked the father, his father, for his share of the inheritance. What a terrible thing to do. Dad, I can't wait till you die. Would you just give me my half now? And then he goes and he spends it on wine, women, and song in another faraway country. And finally, he's out of food, he's out of friends. He's hungry. He's feeding the pigs. And he says, the hired hands have it better in my father's house. I'll go back. I'll tell him I sinned. I've wronged him. I'm not worthy to be a son anymore. Just just let me live as a hired hand. And so he goes back home. And when he's a long way off, his father sees him because his father was waiting for him every day to come home. Some of you are waiting. You're waiting for your children to come home. And the father rushes out to meet the son and the son begins the speech, Father, I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be a son. Let me... Quick, bring the robe, bring the ring, let's have a feast. My son, who was lost, has been found. That's the way the Father thinks about us. That's the way our Heavenly Father reaches out to us. He doesn't take us back as hired hands. He receives us by the grace of Jesus Christ. He receives us and we are adopted into his family as sons. And we address him as father, papa, daddy, abba. Because we are the children of God. John writes, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. Isn't that an amazing thing? That God would call us his children. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. God is a compassionate 
Father. Yes, He cares about us. Yes, He cares about us. He's a loving, compassionate Father. And secondly, and somewhat surprisingly, the Scriptures sometimes compare the love of God to the love of of a gentle and nurturing mother. Now, I don't want to push this too far. I'm sure there's somebody out there that would try to say there's a a feminine side to God or that God is a woman. That's not what the Scripture is saying. It's just that God is reaching for every metaphor He can to try to describe His love for us. And one of those is the picture of a loving mother. And, And you know, you know, how a mother feels about her children. I have to tell you something about our own experience. I guess I'll have to give my wife a dollar. I used to always give my kids a dollar when I used them in a sermon illustration. I don't think a dollar is going to cut it. She said, it ain't going to cut it. You know, uh, one of the most fun things you ever get to do as a minister is go and see all the babies that are being born in the church. That's so much fun. But anyway, when... Lisa was in labor with our first, with Amy. I mean, it was one of these things that just went on and on and on. You know, it was hours and hours, and she was sick. She had bronchitis. She was actually in the hospital for five days, Uh, not because of the childbirth, because she was sick, and there were medications and treatments they wanted to give her that they couldn't give her until after she had the baby. And so it was a very long and exhausting labor, you know, and And here we were, new parents. We'd never been through this thing. And so she's about to go to the delivery room. You know, it's it's time finally after, I don't know, 24, 30 hours, something like that. It's time to have the baby. They wheel her into the delivery room. I think, well, this is going to be the most special moment of my life. The first thing that she does is she turns over and she throws up all over my shoes, you know. And, uh, you know, there's... uh, 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 Still some more to follow after that and uh, discomfort and she was exhausted and it was just an ordeal. And, and then that little baby girl was born. And all of a sudden, the woman that I had been with for 30 hours who had been miserable, who had said, don't look at me, don't touch me, I don't want to hear any coaching about breathing. All of a sudden, there was a smile on her face like I had never seen and probably hadn't seen except for one other time since that time. And all of the pain of childbirth was gone. And the bronchitis and the nausea and everything else that she had experienced, it was all gone. And there she was with this beautiful little girl being held to her breast. That's the way a mother feels about a child. And the Bible says in Isaiah 49, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And then God asks this question. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And then he answers the question. Even these may forget. It's rare to find a mother 
who isn't just crazy about her, her child, who wouldn't immediately die if it would mean that her child would live. You might find it here and there. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. My love for you is greater than a mother's love for her child. And in Isaiah 66, 13, we read, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. God loves us not only as a compassionate father, but also as a gentle, nurturing, and protective mother. But he's not through. God loves us also as a faithful husband who is enamored with his wife, who loves her today the same or even more than the day that he was married. In Hosea 2, 19 and 20, we read, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in Isaiah 54, 5, we read, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Isaiah 62, 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And then Paul picks up this same theme in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5. And we read this verse at weddings and we counsel young couples with this passage who are planning to get married. And we discuss this passage when we do a series on the family. And rightly so. But ultimately, Paul says, at the end of this passage, this mystery is profound And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. What's he saying? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love his church? The Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom, the church, we're the bride. And he loves the church like an adoring husband, like a a faithful husband. A husband who was willing to die for his wife.
I think that most of the men here understand this. Would, would, would you die for your wife? If, if someone broke into your house and threatened your family, would you die trying to protect them? Would you be willing to if that would protect them? Yes, you would. I would. I'm afraid I wouldn't be much help, but I would try. Husbands, when, 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 when Paul is wanting to tell Christian men the kind of husbands they ought to be, he can think of no greater example than Christ. He loved the church, his bride, and he gave himself up for her. He is a faithful husband. He is a husband who is willing to die for his bride. And then Paul has run out of human examples, or at least family examples, by which to describe God's love. And so finally, the Bible compares the love of God and describes the love of God in terms of a Savior who sacrificed his life for us. And this is found not just in the New Testament, but throughout the Bible. God is pictured to us as the Savior of his people who redeemed his people. In Deuteronomy 7, beginning with verse 6, we read, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He chose us. We're his treasured possession. And he redeemed his people. In the Old Testament, out of slavery in Egypt, which was ultimately a picture of bondage to sin. He redeemed us. And so Psalm 137 and 8 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He is a God who cares. He is a God who loves us. He is a God who has laid down his life for us. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, we read, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is a sacrificial Savior. He died for us. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. J.I. Packer writes, The statement, God is love, means that his love finds expression in everything that he says and does. The knowledge that this is so for him personally is the Christian's supreme comfort. As a believer, he finds in the cross of Christ assurance that he, as an individual, is beloved of God. Even when he cannot see the why and the wherefore of God's dealings, he knows that there is love in and behind them so that he can rejoice always, even when, humanly speaking, things are going wrong. As I said, I think there are a certain number of people, perhaps most people, who are willing to concede there is a God, or there probably is a God, and he must be a great God because he created all of this. But does he love us? Does he care about us? Is he involved in our lives? Does he hear our prayers? Does, is he moved by our sorrows? Or has he abandoned us? One of the saddest stories that my wife encountered as an English teacher over the years is a story by Catherine Ann Porter called The Jilting of Granny Weatherall. And the story is that Granny Weatherall is on her deathbed. And the defining event of her life was that as a young woman, she was jilted at the altar. She was prepared to be married. The day for the wedding had come and she was left at the altar by her bridegroom. And uh, she wrestled with this over the years and tried to come to grips with it and, and uh, had a lot of self-pity. And, and, uh, and now she's dying. And at the end of this story, uh, it's a short story, and it ends with... Uh, and it was not written by someone uh, of faith. It says, The blue light from Cornelia's lampshade drew into a tiny point in the center of her brain. It flickered and winked like an eye, 
quietly it fluttered and dwindled. Granny lay curled down within herself, amazed and watchful, staring at the point of light that was herself. Her body was now only a deeper mass of shadow in an endless darkness. And this darkness would curl around the light and swallow it up. God, give us a sign. For a second time, there was no sign. Again, no bridegroom and the priest in the house. She could not remember any other sorrow because this grief wiped them all away. Oh, no, there's nothing more cruel than this. I'll never forgive it. She stretched herself with a deep breath and blew out the light. And what this author is trying to say is that that this woman had put her faith, sometimes falteringly, but she had put her faith in God. But at the end of her life, she was jilted again. And he wasn't there for her. My friends, unlike the missing God in the jilting of Granny Weatherall, our God, the God of the Bible, is a God who loves us. He created us. We are the epitome of his creation. He sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins. He loves us with the love of a compassionate father, of a nurturing mother, of an adoring, faithful husband, and a savior who gave his life for us. We will not be jilted at the altar when we die, but we will be raised to live forever in the presence of our God, who is both almighty and all-loving. You do not need to fear. He is the God who cares. Let us pray. Father in heaven, at times we struggle. At times of trial, at times of uncertainty, at times of sorrow, we may be tempted to wonder if you care. But everything we know about you is that you are a God who cares. You are the God who loves us faithfully, who sent his only son to die for us, who could do nothing more than what you've already done to demonstrate that we are your children, your treasured possession. And that you love us with a steadfast, everlasting love. May we worship you. May we serve you in confidence and joy and love. Because you are the God who cares. In Jesus' name we pray.